Blog Talk Radio. The B-I-B-L-E, that's the book for me. The B-I-B-L-E, that's the book for me.
acknowledge uh, and celebrate uh, fatherhood, uh, the greatest privilege uh, in my life as a follower of Christ um, is being a husband and a father. And um, as of the sixth of this month, now being a grandfather, which um, has added a completely uh, new and exciting dimension to that reality. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, open them with me to, to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Romans 8 is one of the richest chapters in the entire Bible. Um, this is one of those chapters that a preacher could literally just read in its entirety and then go sit down. Um, it, it, it is amazing, um, but I'm not going to do that today. I want us to look here in the, the, the middle of this chapter. Uh, there, there is a, a, a movement that occurs here in the middle of this chapter that connects all of these ideas. Um, so if you'll look with me beginning there um, in verse 12, um, at the beginning there's this great crescendo of, you know, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ and this exhortation and teaching about living by the Spirit as opposed to living by the flesh. And here in the middle we, we get a picture of why and how it is that we live so differently. Paul writes, so then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Amen. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Amen. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. I want to talk to you this morning about the blessing of adoption. The blessing of adoption. I had the privilege of being a father to children into our family, both by birth and by adoption. And it is an amazing thing to become a father at all, but it is quite revealing to become a father by adoption. You know, as we think about the, the what's called in theology the order of salutis or the order of salvation, usually we think about it and we talk about it in terms of justification and sanctification and glorification. And, and that's good. However, it's incomplete. Um, there is a step that we miss. Um, oftentimes, if you read uh, older theologies and if you read older confessions, you will find that they speak not only of justification, sanctification, and glorification, but 
justification, adoption, sanctification, and glorification. And oftentimes we we forget, we skip over, we miss the doctrine of adoption, which is an incredibly important doctrine in and of itself. And as we think about fatherhood vertically and horizontally, one of the things that becoming an adoptive father helped me to realize was that as it relates to this picture, this this picture that is painted through the marriage relationship wherein a husband and a wife paint this picture of the relationship between Christ and his church, and then children being born as the fruit of that union, a picture of the advancement of the kingdom of God. As I thought about this picture, I thought, in the order salutis, I cannot justify anyone. I cannot sanctify anyone, and I cannot glorify anyone. However, I can adopt. And it is amazingly revealing when you think about the doctrine of adoption. A couple of things I want to say here. First, understanding the doctrine of adoption requires us to understand redemption as a whole and from a Trinitarian perspective. As we look at the text again, you notice that as we read this paragraph, there was a mention of the Spirit and his work. There was a mention of the Father and us being his children, and there was a mention of Christ and us being fellow heirs with Christ. This is one of those texts where you see all of the Trinity mentioned together as it relates to our redemption, because redemption is a Trinitarian process. Redemption is something that happens within the Godhead as well as happening to us. And so there is this covenant of redemption. In the covenant of redemption, we see how God, the triune God of the universe, who has existed forever as Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one God in three persons, one God in perfect unity, perfect harmony, and perfect love within himself, one God with absolutely no needs whatsoever. It's important that we realize that, that God needs nothing. God has never needed anything. The triune God is perfect and complete and has always been perfect and has always been complete. God's love within the Trinity has always been complete and utterly satisfying. And yet, in the midst of this complete and utterly satisfying relationship within the Godhead, God the Father loving perfectly the Son and the Spirit, God the Son loving perfectly the Father and the Spirit, God the Spirit loving perfectly the Father and the Son. There is a covenant of redemption, and God the Father bequeaths a people to his Son as an act of love. This is why Jesus uses phrases like, all whom the Father hath given to me. The Father bequeaths a people to the Son as a gift and expression of love. The perfect God who needs nothing. And the Son, as an act of love and obedience to the Father, wraps himself in flesh and lives a perfect life and dies 
undeserved death so that he might redeem those whom the Father has given to him as an act of love. And the Spirit and his love for the Father and the Son applies the redemption to those whom the Son has redeemed. And so those who are redeemed, those who are saved, in a sense, enter into the grandeur of this eternal love story that has been going on and will go on forever. This love between the Father and the Son and the Spirit that has spilled over and has manifested itself in the redemption of God's people theological reality in order to understand the doctrine of adoption, that we've entered into this theological reality of the love in the Godhead. When we understand that, we get this text. First, look at the first benefit here of our adoption. He says in verse 12, so then brothers. Because we are adopted, we are brothers. Amen? Because we are adopted, we are brothers. God's children. God has only one child who is not adopted. That's the second person of the Trinity. Every other child God has is an adopted child. Think about that for a moment. One of the questions that we're asked frequently as adoptive parents, and people usually ask it, you know, in a roundabout way because you don't want to just sort of come out and say it. Because if you just came out and say it, you would say, hey, you love that one like you love that one? But usually people ask it in a different way, you know. I've just, you know, we've thought about that, but I've just always wondered if I would be able to love an adopted child the way that I could love a biological child. When people say that, I say, well, that's because you're a Darwinian evolutionist. (laughs) Well, no, actually, I don't believe in Darwinian evolution. I'm a Christian. Well, actually, your understanding of the love of a parent for a child is Darwinian because you think that love is a biological reality when biblically nothing could be further from the truth. We don't love our children because we're related to them biologically. That's not why we love our children. We love our children because by God's grace, he gives us a measure of the love that has existed for eternity in the Godhead and that was manifested in the adoption of a people by God. If you don't understand how a parent could love a biological child, you don't understand how God could love you or an adopted child, rather, because that's exactly what you are, an adopted child. And as adoptive parents, you never make a difference between the children who came into your home by adoption and the children who came into your home biologically. They're just your children and their brothers and sisters, regardless of how they came into the family. And so because of the doctrine of adoption, we are brothers. Whether we know it or not, whether we like it or not, whether we acknowledge it or not, we are brothers. This is the beauty of the body of Christ. 
I've had the privilege of preaching in many places around the world. And now I have the privilege of having moved from here halfway across the world to live in Zambia for almost a year now. And the amazing thing is, regardless of where I go, I have family there. (laughs) Amen? Regardless of where I go, I have family there. But why? Listen to this, if you will. If you want to understand the significance of that. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning verse 11. We love Ephesians 2, right? 1 through 10. We just love it. We just read that. Amen. Praise the Lord. We just read, yes. Ephesians chapter 2. In fact, when I said Ephesians chapter 2, you know, some of you got all excited. And then I said verse 11. You're like, oh, okay. After the good stuff. Mm-mm. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law and commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to those who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Through Christ redeeming and atoning death, he has created one people. One people. And no matter where we go, when we find someone who has been redeemed and who has entered in to this eternal picture of the love that the Father and Son and Spirit have had throughout all eternity that has overflowed into the redemption of a people for God. Anytime we run into someone who is a part of that great drama, we can say, my brother, my sister. It is one of the Greek benefits of the doctrine of adoption. Secondly, look at this. We are debtors, back in Romans 8:12, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the flesh, of the body rather, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons 
by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Here's the second reality. Not only does the doctrine of adoption mean that we are brothers, but it also means that God is our, our Father. God is our Father because of the doctrine of adoption. Not just our Savior, but our Father. This is helpful in a number of ways, not least of which the assurance of our salvation. You see, there are those of us who think about God as our Savior. We think about God as the judge who has justified us. And we remain fearful of this God who has justified us. And we're worried about being able to please this God who has justified us. And there are those of us who constantly think that, oh, I've done this or I've done that, and, and therefore I, I, I may be in trouble with this God who has justified me. But when you understand that the God who justified you is the God who adopted you, it changes the way you think about your salvation. God did not just rescue you from sin so that you could stand in his courtroom rescued from sin. God rescued you from sin so that he could adopt you and take you home with him. You're his child. He's your father. Yeah, but I don't like that. I had a, I had a father who was, who was this. I had a father who was that. I don't know that I like that terminology. Listen. You don't have to like the terminology, but you need to understand it. And you need to understand that imperfect examples do not alter perfect realities. Do you know what's wrong with that thinking? There are many people, and they actually think, they think, you know, I have a struggle with the fatherhood of God because I had an imperfect father. You know what's wrong with that? What's wrong with that is that you are actually saying that you believe that there are other people who had perfect fathers, and therefore they don't have a problem with the fatherhood of God. Do you, do you get that? Do you understand that nobody has had a perfect father? Nobody. And so our understanding of fatherhood does not go from man to God. It goes from God to man. When you're a child, all you have is this horizontal reality. And this horizontal reality is supposed to point you to the vertical reality. But once you've been pointed to the vertical reality, you don't then say, well, that vertical reality must have all the imperfections of the horizontal one. No, you don't. the imperfections of the horizontal example because God is a perfect father there is no imperfection in him here is another thing that you need to understand those who struggle with this idea of God's fatherhood because of imperfect fathers that you've seen do you realize that the only reason imperfections in your father bother you is because God, by his grace, has granted you an understanding that it should have been better? Otherwise, you would just be satisfied with the imperfect picture. 
It is only God's grace that causes you to cry out and to yearn for a better father relationship horizontally because something in you knows that there is more to being a father. And the only reason you know that is that God, by his grace, has granted you that desire. And he doesn't just grant desires. He satisfies them. And you see the imperfections in your father horizontally. Allow it to cause you to praise your heavenly father who does not have those imperfections. Thirdly, not only are we brothers and God our Father, but we also have God's character in us. Notice what he says here. That we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And brings me into his family. I become a part of his family culture. This not only changed the way I think about my justification, it changed the way I think about my sanctification. You see, I don't think about sanctification as though uh, here I am, I'm justified. Now, here are laws of God. And I just become better at keeping those laws of God. There is a list. And today I check off the list and I score a 40. And tomorrow I check off the list and I score a 41. And then the next day I check off the list and I score a 42. No, that is not the way families work. Because we're adopted, what happens is God's very character becomes our character. And we begin to express the character of God. My sanctification is not just about me not murdering someone. It's what does Jesus say? You've heard it said, you shall not commit murder. I say, if you hate your brother, you're guilty already. See, if sanctification is just about me being able to keep a checklist, that's weak. That's frail. That's nothing. This is far more significant than that. Because of an eye begin to reflect the very character of God more and more each day. There is a family resemblance. So I don't just do more righteous things. I actually become a more righteous man. That's the beauty of adoption. There is, as John says in First John, this seed of righteousness in us. And it grows and it endures. That's the beauty of sanctification. There is a final piece. And it's that final piece of union and communion with Christ. We cry out the Father. Look at the next verse. 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. There is union and communion with Christ by his spirit. 
there's an amazing reality here. Christ is my Savior and my Redeemer and my King, and he is also my older brother. What an amazing reality. My King and my Judge became my Redeemer and my brother. Union and communion with Christ by and through the presence and power of his Spirit. This is the beauty of Christianity. This is why we refer to it as a walk with God. He is Christ in us, the hope of glory. We walk with God. So that by his spirit, who dwells within us and empowers us, I grow in my union and communion with Christ. So here's the question. That family resemblance as it grows, what does it look like? It looks like Jesus. And we become more and more like Christ because of our adoption, because he is the one who has paid the price to redeem us. And by his spirit, we are conformed to his image more and more each day. Look with me, if you will, toward the end of this chapter. Look at that last paragraph, verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, All things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Why do I have hope of eternal life? Because of this reality. God saves us, and he adopts us, and he conforms us to the very image of Christ. By the power of his spirit grows in us. And the one who called us is the one who justified us. And the one who justified us is the one who glorifies us. So we come again to the assurance of our salvation. You know when I struggle with the assurance of my salvation? When I look to myself, when I look to myself, when I think about heaven and then I look at me, I can't help but think I can't get there from here because I can't. But when I think about heaven and look to the cross, when I think about heaven and look to the triune God, when I think about heaven and think about this love that has existed eternally in the Godhead, between the Father and the Son and the Spirit, 
this love that has overflowed and has manifested itself in the redemption of a people for God's glory. This people whom the Father bequeathed to the Son, whom the Son redeemed out of love for the Father, and to whom the Spirit applies this redemption out of his love for the Father and the Son. As I think about that and being enveloped in that, and as I think about God working this out to his own glory, think about the fact that he redeemed me in order to adopt me and make me a son. Then my assurance comes from my understanding of who God is, not from my understanding of who I am. And as you reflect on these realities today, may I encourage you to reflect in this way. There are a number of possibilities as you sit and listen to a message like this. Possibility number one is that you sit here today and you listen to this message and you hear it and it causes you to understand in a deeper way your redemption that you have in Christ. And your response is worship and praise and adoration and gratitude. And to that I say yes and amen. Response number two is you sit here today and you recognize yourself as one who struggles with your assurance of salvation and your assurance of God's love for you. And my hope is that if that is you today, that you cease to look at yourself and whether or not you have become worthy of this love, but you look instead to the triune God who is love who has manifested his love for us in this, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's how we know. We know the love of God because of the redemption that we have in Christ. I love my grandson. He hadn't done a thing yet. He was born of my child. And I'm born of the Son. And the Father loves me because of that. And if that's you here today, be free. Stop looking to yourself for assurance. Because there is no assurance in you. Assurance is found only in Christ. There is a third possibility that you've come here today not understanding what it means to be redeemed, not understanding what it means to be a Christian. You walked in here today, and your thought was this. Being a Christian means that you have a list of things that you do and a list of things that you don't do, and if you do a good enough job at that, then one day perhaps God will accept you. If that's you, rejoice today. Because you've heard the gospel. And you can leave here no longer believing that lie. That self-defeating lie. But understanding that salvation is found in Christ and in Christ alone. 
that's you here today, my prayer for you is that God, by his grace, would smile on you and in doing so would cause you to see your need for Christ. And in seeing your need for Christ, you would turn from living according to your flesh and that you would repent of your sin, that you would turn to Christ, that you would trust him, and that as a result of that, you would enter into this grand reality of the love of God that's found in Christ and his redemption. And for all of us, the result is the same. Leaving this place overwhelmed, by the glory and goodness and grace of God. Responding in praise and adoration. And thanksgiving. And with a renewed understanding of the significance not of Father's Day but of fatherhood. Because we understand it in light of the reality God who is our father who has adopted us who has made us his own and who has made us brothers let's pray Father we thank you for your goodness for your kindness for your mercy for your redemption that is ours in Christ. Grant by your grace that we might walk in it to his glory and to his praise. Amen. Cessationism is not the belief that God is no longer doing miracles today. If we were to say that, then we would have to say that God is no longer saving people today. Because being saved is the greatest miracle of all. Cessationism is not the belief that God is no longer doing miracles. Nor is cessationism the belief that none of the uh, uh, spiritual gifts are in operation today. Cessationism is simply the belief that only the apostolic gifts have ceased. Tongues, interpretation of tongues, miracles, and physical healing. All of the other gifts, the more normative gifts, the service gifts, if you will, like mercy, teaching, the discernment, all of these spiritual gifts are still very much in operation today. But only the apostolic gifts, tongues, interpretation of tongues, miracles, and physical healing have ceased. In March of 2020, churches in North America and around the world were instructed by governing authorities to shut their doors. A deadly pandemic was said to be sweeping the globe. Only essential services should remain open, and the church was not essential. Many churches complied. In fact, famous pastors like Andy Stanley, Rick Warren, and then Southern Baptist President J.D. Greer said they'd keep their churches shuttered until the next year. People on the other end of this argument, I keep hearing them say over and over, the Lord commands us to meet. The Lord commands us to meet. He does not. God requires us to meet. The very nature of who we are, the ecclesia. We are a gathered people. In the 17th century, John Bunyan, author of Pilgrim's Progress, 
was arrested and put in prison for holding unlawful meetings, preaching to groups of more than five people outside his own family. During the COVID restrictions, Canadian pastors like James Coates and Tim Stevens went to jail for having church, and very few Christians stood by them. Hebrews 10, 24 to 25 says, Let us consider how to stir one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The church is essential. When it happens again that a tyrannical government wants to impose its will on the church, remind them that Christ, not Caesar, is head of the church. Stand with the apostles who said, we must obey God rather than men when we understand the text. Test the Spirit. This is Ken Hare, often interviewed on radio and TV on the Bible's reliability and authority. The New Testament is filled with warnings to be watchful and to avoid false teachers. That was true back then and is still true today. Many who claim to be Christians are nothing but false teachers leading God's people astray. So how can we watch for them? The Apostle Paul tells us to test the spirits to see if they are from God, for many false teachers have gone into the world. When we hear a teaching, we can't just blindly accept it. We need to test it. But by what standard? Well, how do we know anything authoritative about God? By his word. God's word is his revelation to us, and we must compare everything against it. Subscribe to receive free email insights from Ken Ham when you visit our website at AnswersRadio.com and learn more about the accuracy of God's Word at AnswersRadio.com. I am the Goldfish guy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so glad you're in my life. 
teaching according to Christ. This is Ken Hand, author of the popular devotional commentary, Creation to Babel. In the book of Colossians, we're told to beware of being taken captive by philosophy and empty deceit. Now, how can we know what is mere philosophy and deceit? Well, the Apostle Paul says that such things are according to human traditions and the things of this world, not Christ. How do we know what's according to Christ? By looking at his word. The only way we know anything authoritative about Christ is from his word. It tells us everything we need for life and for godliness. Does a teacher point you back to God's word and to Christ? Or do they distract you by focusing on things outside God's word? The focus should be Christ. Plan your visit to the world-class art encounter and creation museum when you visit AnswersRadio.com and discover more about the reliability of God's word at AnswersRadio.com.
heart of false teaching. This is Ken Ham, encouraging all churches to start their thinking with God's Word. This week, we're looking at how to discern false teaching. We've seen we must compare all teaching to God's Word and also take a close look at the fruit. Well, we can also look at the heart behind a teaching. Scripture says false teachers will follow their sensuality. Does the heart behind a teaching encourage sin and lust of the flesh? Many teachers today won't teach on sin. Some even claim that what the Bible says is sin isn't sin. This is part of following the sensuality, doing what they want to do, and just changing the Bible when it says otherwise. But if a message is from God, it will spur us to righteousness. Find resources to equip you to think biblically when you visit AnswersRadio.com and listen to this program again and read fascinating articles by Ken at AnswersRadio.com. Do that. Remember that he loves you. 
both teachers and sound teaching. This is Ken Ham, and we produce the family-friendly Answers Bible Curriculum. Today, we're wrapping up a series on what the Bible says about discerning false teaching. Well, here's the final thing to watch for. The Bible warns us that false teachers won't endure sound teaching. It's not that false teachers just downplay sound doctrine. They won't even endure it. They can't stand what the Bible says about who God is, what sin is, and what it says about repentance, judgment, and salvation. Instead, they invent their own God, who likes what they like and hates what they hate. And as I've said before, the only way we can recognize those who won't endure sound teaching is by knowing God and his word. Subscribe to receive free daily email insights from Ken Ham. When you go to AnswersRadio.com, you'll be equipped, encouraged, and built up at AnswersRadio.com. Quiet at night when the lights go out. Well, that's when I go to 
He has said, you must do this, you must not do that. And imposing those obligations, we owe it to God to perform those obligations. If we don't, we become debtors to the law and debtors to the God of the law. And the problem that we face, as we learn in the New Testament, is that we're debtors who can't file for chapter 11. There's no way we can pay the debt. It's a hopeless task. It's a fool's errand to try to pay the debt that we owe. But this is what's basic to our human things is we can't stand that. We want to be able somehow to pay the debt and meet the obligation rather than to say, I'm helpless. I'm a debtor who can't pay my debts. The only way I can stand before a just and holy God is if somebody else pays the debt. And the only one who has earned the right to pay somebody else's debt is the Son of God. And that's why we talk about justification through Christ alone, who alone has the merit to pay for us. He is the treasury of merit. Nothing could be added to or subtracted from that treasury that is in him.
that there might have been issues with his kids or maybe other areas of his life. So that's something to keep in mind, and I'll elaborate a little bit more on that later in a different point. Third, when it comes to the interaction between God, Satan, and the sons of God, some of my answer is going to be, I don't know. But I do, however, find it really interesting that God was the one who brought Job to the attention of Satan. Now, people think it's the other way around, that Satan challenged Job, but no, God challenged Satan. Now, just an interesting point here. There are some difference of opinions among some theologians as to the identity of Satan. Like, Satan isn't a name, it's an identity. Like, some say that it wasn't Satan the devil, it was just an adversary, but I digress. Now, let's actually read this passage in Job, starting in uh, chapter 1, verse 6 to 12. It says, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, Where have you been? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? that there is none like him on earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. Do not take his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. So then we see that, that many things were inflicted on Job. And I find it interesting that after his wife basically urges him to curse God and die, Job's response is, shall we accept good from God and not trouble? And through it all, he never left God. And I think that's something to pause at. God wasn't being petty. So here's my point with this. People who have lived through their own times and own troubles have had this same tension with God, that suffering provokes our true intentions with God. My case in point for our generation, I point you towards 2020. In particular, I personally have seen sharp dividing lines being drawn in the theological sand when it comes to people who faithfully follow Jesus and those who compromise. We have seen a surge in deconstructionism and in progressivism like I've never seen before. Who is going to hold the line when things get tough? And who's going to cave to the popular culture or to their self? People have left Jesus in droves. They have created their own version of him. That's the version that they want to embrace. And this Jesus likes what they like, believes what they believe, and approves of everything that they do. They have embraced a syncretistic type of belief system that is very comfortable for them, where they have accepted Jesus without forsaking the world. That's a very contradictory statement in and of itself. Social justice has become the new gospel. Following our hearts is the new Bible. And people have traded virtues for vices, claiming that these are only defined by the person. What provoked all of this? It was suffering. I believe that God provokes to expose, and sometimes God provokes us through tribulation, and this exposes the heart. When the disciples were persecuted, they worshipped. When the American church in 2020 started feeling tribulation, hard times, 
maybe not necessarily persecution, sure, maybe some worshipped, but a lot went into panic and they compromised. It's one of those true colors scenarios where you get to see the actions behind the words, whether that's good or bad. And I say that suffering has a way of telling us where our true loyalties lie. When being a believer isn't convenient, fun, or comfortable anymore, are you still going to worship him? Will we be obedient through it all? I think that's the heart of the issue. Number four, a major area to remember about Job is that suffering is never in vain. He was blessed tremendously in the end, but even if we suffer, it's important to know that for the Christian, it's never in vain. Job straight up got mad at God. He got angry. He asked him why. He protested and felt that what we'd probably all feel if we'd led a pious life and went through what he did. And this is interesting, if God allows us to lament and be angry, the Psalms are full of this. God is not afraid or surprised by our feelings. Job was blessed in the end, right? But I think our posture should be, even if he doesn't heal, even if he doesn't give me a miracle, even if he doesn't come through, like I think he should come through, I will still worship him. Even if God in his wisdom and omnipotence chooses not to, I will not leave my Lord who I love and trust. And I think this book is an excellent testimony of this. All right, my fifth point is you said on the surface, it looks like Job's kids died just because God and Satan were trying to prove points to each other. I personally do not think that that is the case. You said that Job feels out of character for God to you and you just like a better understanding of how it all fits in the rest of scripture. Well, I think that's kind of the point is that in our perspective, it's limited. Now let me take this a different direction. Let's pretend for a moment that this was not in scripture. I think that we would lose one of the most valuable possessions we have as Christians uh, in our struggle with having insight on how to make sense of suffering. I have found that those that go through the most intense suffering understand Job more than anyone else. I think part of the deepest concepts of this book is when Job says in the worst parts of his pain and suffering, like in Job 23 verse 10, he says, but he knows the way that I take. And when he has tested me, I will come forth as gold. This doesn't mean that suffering is meaningless. This means that for the martyr, uh, for the injured, for those with cancer, chronic illness, poverty, and, and countless trials, The lesson is that testing purifies us and reveals the gold-refined character within us. I would say that it's in the depths of our suffering that we look for God. And C.S. Lewis has said that pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. I'm on my sixth point. Wow, this, this alone could be its own video, but I like expounding on this. So hang with me. A few more points. I would challenge the readers of Job Uh, to extend their understanding of the writing beyond their own personal situation or experience. To understand the Bible, we look for Jesus, right? Not ourselves. Even Job points towards Jesus, and he's the answer for our suffering. What's really interesting, check this out, okay? In the beginning of the book of Job, he does something really interesting. He, He did an offering, and that's worth pointing out that he didn't do a sin offering for his children, right? He did it on their behalf. He did a burnt offering on behalf of his children. A burnt offering was a symbol of of total dedication to God and awareness of God as he has rightful ownership of us. 
A burnt offering was a sacrifice of a male animal, the most perfect that you could find in your herd or flock, completely without blemish. And the perfection of the burnt offering symbolizes the sacrifice of Jesus. If we find a parallel here, when Jesus stood before Pilate, he declared that they, he found no fault in Jesus at all. And in a way, this mirrors Jesus' suffering for us. Job was blameless, but he wasn't perfect. Jesus, God in the flesh, was in a sense the perfect Job. He was unfairly inflicted with great suffering, yet it was not in vain. All right, my seventh point is that Job expresses how Satan is not God's equal or opposite. Now, I mentioned before that there's some interesting debate on some theological circles about the sons of God and the adversary, the Satan, 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 that's how it's said, <laughs> and their approaching of, of God, Yahweh. But the point is that this displays God's sovereignty and providence and pokes quite a hole in open theism, the idea that God isn't quite all-powerful. And as far as God's sovereignty, I'm glad that Job exists because it explicitly contradicts many of the prosperity teachings we see going around how God would never allow a faithful person to suffer and that God just wants you to live a happy and victorious life. People just look silly trying to command, declare, and decree God to do anything in light of Job. God is not our heavenly bellboy. I actually had a friend this week say that, that Job is the elephant in the room for the health and wealth prosperity teachers, and it's very true. All right, my last point on this is I'd like to propose some insight on the interaction between Job and God that should be considered. Satan's philosophy is me first, right? It's believed that Satan fell because of his pride. He bows to no one. He is his own God. This is the religion of man as well. This is, in my opinion, the biggest obstacle for people accepting the gospel. They do not want to serve somebody else other than themselves. So no doubt, this is very reflective of what we have always seen in society, not just of today's society. But the thing is, is that this is actually a satanic philosophy. Satan is not all-knowing. That's important because what I'm submitting is that Satan believes that this is a fundamental philosophy for mankind, including Job. The point here that I'm trying to make is that Satan is saying that Job has everything, and this is why he loves and obeys God. Satan was condemned for being prideful and rebellious, but what's the difference between us and him? It's love. And it's not that we love, it's who we love or ourselves. Who do we love more? Now hang with me here because this is a really, I think, in my opinion, a really good point about Job because it's only in the obedience, the, the laying down of self, worshiping the one true God no matter the circumstances, which is part of the point of Job. I think that this puts Satan and God's interaction on another level in this light. It was not a petty wager. It was God displaying his control and showing that Job, a man with no special spiritual powers or privilege, will still follow and worship God because Job loves him. So this was more than just an accusation of Job. This was an accusation of God himself that, hey, God, you just, in essence, bribed Job into obedience. And God's saying, no, he loves me. Now, I know that I gave a lot 
honest answer. And even then, I could say so much more about this topic. I just, I really hope that that maybe has given some insight on this. Um, even though I, I don't have all the answers about this, there's, I just have to say, a lot more to joke than meets the eye. All right, here we go, kids. Gather round. A brand new sound to praise the one who has the crown. In today's lesson, we'll talk about the Holy Bible, the most important book we all need for survival. The Bible is God's message for this world. It's for every man and woman, every boy and girl. And that message is that if we turn to Christ and place our trust in Him, we'll have eternal life. Now, when we're at church, yeah, it's fun, it's cool. When we hear a lot of stories in Sunday school, like Jacob and Noah, Moses and Daniel, David and Jonah, Joseph and Samuel, all the little stories tell one big story about the God who made all things for his glory. So as we read the Bible, it's important that we see this. There's only one hero, and his name is Jesus. I got some um, 
book previews from uh, time to time I receive emails about people being considered for my show and they have they have books and um, these books there's three I have more than I probably got to do next week um, but so far there's these three um, the one the first one is how to revive evangelism seven vital shifts and how we share our faith and the second one is called The Shadow on My Heart, Faith, Family, Forgiveness by Stefan Rybuck. And um, that's spelled R-Y-B-A-K, S-T-E-F-A-N. And the first one is by Craig Springer. And the last one, the the longest two, the longest review I got, is Broken and Redeemed by John Jarman. That's uh, J-O-H-N and then J-A-R-M-A-N. And here's what I got written down um, for uh, how to revive evangelism, seven vital shifts, and how we share our faith. Uh, This book, it encourages people to preach the gospel, and um, but it I didn't felt like it had a very strong possible presentation in it, if there was any at all. It was, say, the proclaimment, but it was, uh, I think, devoid of it. And it says to uh, pray, uh, it, well, it says, it also considers um, Roman Catholics to be uh, just a denomination of, of Christianity, which I do not believe, if I believe there. They have wrong teaching and um, damnable heresy, and um, but the good thing is he encourages still encourage people to preach, preach the gospel. And um, this is this is about Craig Springer, the one who wrote it. Um, Craig Springer is a executive director of Alpha USA an evangelism program that runs in more than 8,000 churches and ministries across every major denomination and 600 prisons throughout the country. Alpha mobilizes over 50,000 volunteers and over 500,000 participants annually in the USA and more than 1.3 million globally. Alpha is a simple idea of a great meal, a short film, and a meaningful discussion about life and faith over 10 weeks with a digital experience option as well. Craig is the author of How to Follow Jesus, a practical guide for growing your faith. It's on there around 2020. And How to Revive Evangelism, the one that I just uh, talked about. And that is also by Zondra Van from 2021. Prior to... Alpha Craig pastor at influential churches in the Chicago and Denver area and now lives in Denver with his wife and two children. And the next book um, that I'm telling you to review about for me is The Shadow on My Heart, Faith, Family, Forgiveness by Stefan Ryback. And it's good because story I like hearing people's stories, especially if it's uh, about the how they became Christian, 
but um, it starts with the major heart surgery and sharing his family and how he, he became sex, successful with re, being a radio DJ that weaves, it weaves in spirituality throughout it. Um, it's an interesting story, but warning, it does have some cussing, and I don't think he's a Christian from what um, I assessed in the book. I could be wrong, but um, also um, the book is about two years old. I hadn't gotten to um, reading it before until now. And there are indicators that he and his mother were both Roman Catholics, so I also don't agree with that. I think that's bad teaching, heretical teaching, dental heresy. And... um, said about the author, Stefan Larvet is an energetic, enthusiastic, positively motivated, highly experienced multimedia manager professional with a 40-year track record of proven success, expertise in radio, television, print, and digital media. Stefan's background and experience includes advertising, marketing, sales, sales management, management consulting, new media, and professional speaking. Stefan has written over 500 published articles and won the Billboard Magazine Program Operation Director of the Year and two award for two consecutive years. And he lives in the greater New York City area with his family. And the next book, this is the last one for this week, is Broken and Redeemed by John Jerman. Um, I have a lot to... Uh, say about this one, so I'll just read the, um, about the author, uh, about the author section first. Um, John Jerman is a professional fitness coach and men's discipleship leader with a passion for seeing lives changed by faith in God. A former football coach and Marine Corps veteran of Desert Storm, uh, John's life was radically transformed from a self-destructive trajectory of selling drugs and using people to one of life, wholeness, and faith. And like I said, the book Broken and Redeemed by John Jeremy, this book is mixed with an autobiography, interactive questions, and practical advice. One thing is, uh, as with the rest of the book that I talked about, I reviewed is it doesn't have a strong uh, gospel presentation. I think it does have it, but it's like kind of a little bit more vague. And although he does better than the rest of the people in the other books, uh, he talks about generational curses, which I believe is wrong teaching. Um, That's when they think uh, um, it's uh, like that we have curses that that uh, that we get from our uh, family line, and you have to pray for it to get rid of it. Uh, I don't believe in this teaching. I don't think the Bible supports it, because even the Bible says about the part, it says, and part of it, it says that each one's responsible for their own sins. And um, he also makes the spirituality of talking in one part about Native American teaching on one part, um, so I mixed that up. Uh, there is 
at least one foot in his foot say cuss, which I don't think is becoming of a Christian. He says things like God spoke to him in different parts of the book. And so, like, I think that God didn't speak to, like, um, he uses the the word to speak to us, not just, like, just, I guess, nudging or something. Um, that he, and then he said that he, um, in the book, he said he was spiritually oppressed. He also points that I don't, I think that like it's kind of like does a lot of emphasis on uh, on the effects of demons and the spiritual war. You know, there is spiritual war. I think the way he handled it was um, was wrong with the way he said it in the book. Um, he also points out to things as signs of God, and I don't think God does that. He doesn't like just gives a sign that to do something or or that we're doing something right or whatever. And uh, I don't think as Christians we're supposed to do that, to depend on that. And on one chapter, he had a strong emphasis of dealing with demons, which I don't think Christians are to mess with. He even mentions teaching from Rick Warren, which I don't consider he's not good. A teacher, he's not, I don't, I don't even think he's even a, a true Christian. Um, who and um, he even says there are teaching that says demons are active in what's called the fourth watch, is a certain amount of time, which I guess in the in the nighttime or, or early morning. But I don't think this is the Bible supports this teaching and. There is some teaching throughout it, I believe, as the section of disciplining people, but except he does like a sort of sinner's prayer. He he support he talks about that that he did that um, with people, and that I think that he said that the about talking about walking down the aisle and stuff like that. What do you call it? Uh, um, it's like a, a altar call. They call it. Um, yeah, I don't think that we're supposed to do altar calls either as a Christian. And this book has some some uh, good quotes from A.W. Tozer and mentions Bible verses, but I think that it's a mixed bag of a book that some of it is accurate and some of it is not, especially in the using of the Bible verses. Uh, he seems the, the most genuine of all the authors that I've read for these three books. Uh, I have read, but um, I still think he has some bad teaching that needs to be fixed. He mentions First uh, Corinthians ten thirteen, the only Bible verse that's not true, which is troubling for me. That would be like saying God's a liar or deceiver. He, um, yeah. So that verse, um, he says, um, let me see. Uh, let me see real quick. I'm gonna look it up. I should have had it ready, but I'm gonna look at it's uh, what did it say? It said it is, it said it is, uh, um, let's see. Sorry about that. Um, 
Oh yeah, First Corinthians ten thirteen. Okay. First Corinthians ten thirteen. Okay, I'm gonna read that. It said, "No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and He will not put, uh, let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with temptation, He will provide." Uh, the way of escape that you may be able to endure. And he's, I think he's trying to say that that God does like has temptation that we we uh, can't escape, but I think that's wrong um, since the, he talking about that verse. And um, uh, oh, I did have it listed on here on the Review, sorry. So, um, but let's see. And um, it says also um, there's a, a part of it towards the end. It says uh, it's called a chapter called Dear Younger Me. And when there's a song by Bart Miller that he, uh, Mercy Me, that he talks about. And um, but kind of a waste of time to think about that. It's like. Yeah, we all have regrets, but but those things are are things that God used, whether sin or not sin. He um, He used it to uh, bring us to to Him. So I think it's not really that great to like just to think what you would say to your younger self because um, it it is what it is and. Once we're forgiven, it's it's uh, we see the uh, look back and see like how God went throughout our lives and and brought us to Him. So I guess do that. I guess it's kind of good, but um, I don't think you have to. Um, he tells about making a letter to your younger self. He actually tells like, has have you done that? Because throughout the book, he has different questions. And um, and you're supposed to answer them, um, and I guess it's kind of like a workbook in a way. Uh, so it's like I said, it's a, it's a mix of autobiography, interactive questions, and practical advice. And I um, that's all I have about that. That that book again, once again, is uh, broken and redeemed by John Jeremy. And it's up to you if you want to read the books for yourself, but I'll give you the names again. Uh, How to Revive Evangelism, Seven Vital Shifts, and How We Share Our Faith. And that is by Craig Springer. And The Shadow on My Heart, Faith, Family, Forgiveness by Stefan Ryback. And Broken and Redeemed by John Jeremy. And... That's all I got for the uh, review. So hopefully, uh, the it'll, um, you'll you got some something out of hearing this. And hope if you would like to do this, um, maybe send me an email or share with me like for an idea for guests, or you would be a, like a guest or review your book too. Um, send the email to truth. We told radio show at gmail.com. That's 
truth spelled T R U T H and then V E T O L D R A D I O show S H O at gmail.com. Trippy Toll Radio Show at gmail.com. And I appreciate that because it gives me um, interesting content to have on my show. And um, what I'm going to do for you now is I'm going to play a song. This one is called Leadeth. He leads me. I'm sorry. He leads me. And this is by Go Fish.
I got for Truth Be Told Radio. I am going to go out with Yanti and friends singing the V.I. Really. And until next time, bye for now. <laughs>